Lots to talk about. We weren't able to do the weekly update last week, so today we will catch up, hopefully. Malcolm Holmlock, Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, joins us for the weekly update on this Friday morning. Mr. Holmline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Good morning, Nachum. Nice to speak with you. I hope that... Uh, uh, you were, I, ho- I, I assume that because this was the biggest news story of the week, uh, that you were following it closely. I hope you had an opportunity to participate in the wondrous eclipse this week. After all, it looked like that was the most important news item, according to our news media sources. At least it was the least controversial. <laughs> Nobody seemed to make partisan yet. But I actually saw it from the, in writing from the White House. I uh, happened to be there and walked out, and there were all these people in the glasses, and they offered it to me, and I actually got to see it, so it added to the historic significance of it. Yeah, well, that's very cool and certainly very significant, and I assume you noticed that uh, some of the members of the media criticized the president for the way he viewed the eclipse. Did you see that? No, I did not. <laughs> there, there, there were news sources actually critical of him for looking up at the sun and judging whether that was a smart move or not, because everything he does, but I guess you would say that every president goes through that, everything he does has uh, tremendous scrutiny following him. Speaking of which, since we last spoke, we have not gotten your opinion, your evaluation, uh, your uh, overview of what happened in Charlottesville and the aftermath. Obviously, the Jewish community is one that is extremely concerned about things like this, episodes like this, and certainly reactions from the White House. Tell us what you thought as this was all going on and as the president was being criticized, what seemed to be from right and left for his reaction. Or lack of reaction. Right. I think that the, you know people look to the president, they look to authority figures to be very clear in, in situations like this, especially where there was a loss of life and where the the concern obviously is not just about the one incident but about the ongoing uh, danger that it poses and seeing these groups and seeing swastikas, seeing uh, people marching with their hate-filled messages, uh, I think certainly demands uh, people that those in authority speak out and act. You know, the fact that a society has haters is not the determinant. It's how they deal with those haters, how you isolate them, and how you um, address them, both through legal means and but also moral means. And that means also the representatives, the media, the leaders of the church groups, religious groups, the uh, people of every sector, uh, um, you know, entertainment figures, others, are all really required to address this. And also technology. I think what he said, that there are haters on the left and the right. We see it on campuses. We see it elsewhere, that it's not uh, isolated to one. But there was one side that was marching with swastikas, and and, uh, and therefore I think people were concerned that, that if you just equate everybody, everything gets thrown into the same pot, uh, was the subject of a, of a lot of the controversy that emerged you know, afterwards. So I hope that... It's something that everybody can really come together on and that we we not just look at the one event, but we look at the ongoing uh, hate that is is being inculcated in people, in young people especially. And and, uh, for me, the battleground is the campus and maybe the high schools and to see to it that our educational system does a better job, that we teach about the the, the history and the the cost of hate, the, the irrationality of it. And the, that is not, I think, often the case here. 
A couple of things on this. Um, when, when people of a certain background, or maybe of a certain age, turn to you as a Jewish leader and ask, how could this be happening in the U.S. in 2017, what's the answer? Is there a good answer to that question? Because it can happen anywhere at any time. There's no society that's immune to it. Uh, and, it is not, and it should not be such a, a shock. The problem is that people have not paid attention you know, we often look with greater clarity, for instance, at what's going on in Europe. And I think that the um, the lessons that we should have learned from Europe and the lessons that the governments of Europe have to learn now, that they, that they can't ignore it, you can't put this under the rug, that you can't make like you can somehow not confront it either by positive actions, integration, you know, taking a more aggressive uh, stance on on immigration or other issues, positive or negative. But the, the certainly the one thing you can't do is to to ignore it, and that means being proactive. So every society faces these challenges. Behold, We say it at the seder. It doesn't say it in the past tense. It says it in the present tense to remind us that every society and every generation faces the enemies from without and from within. And I think it was Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky or Rav who said something on on this and said, you mean there isn't any generation that didn't have it, behold, over there, in every generation? And he said, the answer is that if you look at the next paragraph, Tzayil Ahmad, where you read about Lavan and his efforts to, to destroy Yaakov, that he, Yaakov was living his life working for first wife, second wife, but his flock was growing, his family was growing. And I'm sure he didn't think that there was anything going on, but in fact, beneath the surface, there was Lavan plotting against them, La Karsa Kol, to destroy it all. And, and that's the message, he says, is that no generation should become complacent and not believe that it will affect them, not believe that it will affect their children and grandchildren, that every generation has to be alert. And we learn the lessons from past generations, that we see the signs and we see the signals. And that's why Jews have special antenna, antenna which come from all the, the generations that had to meet different kinds of uh, suffering. And the colors of the uniforms may change and the language that they speak or the particular hate that they espouse from far left, far right, wherever. <clears throat> we know and we have it, I hope, in our genes already to be alert and to recognize that how you have to address these issues. There seem, this is no secret, that uh, there are many people in our community, I think I would say nationwide, certainly in the New York, New Jersey area, who, who felt that a vote for Donald Trump uh, was a vote for more comfort for the Jewish world, both vis-a-vis Israel and likely in the United States as well. I'm not here to say that he's at the root of this problem or he's the cause of it, but I find it ironic, maybe as you just described, not so ironic but more accurate, that no matter who's in office and no matter what we expect, you never know what to expect. Right, and and I don't know that, you know, that whether he really understands why the reaction is what it is, uh, both to, to his personal comments and, of course, to the actions that administration takes. Administrations become targets, and this administration hasn't been always articulate in the way that it expresses itself or uh, often when it expresses itself and then contradicts itself. Every administration has that problem, and you have such scrutiny and intense scrutiny going on that the um, 
and, and it can be demoralizing to people because, you know, people feel insecure or they feel, you know, that this is a, a growing threat and it, it's not being addressed. And it means it's a city level, a state level, a federal level, and even an international level. There's got to be attention and pay to it in a serious way. No question about that. All right, talking about Charlottesville and its aftermath and its reaction, just a couple of more things. First of all, anything specific to say about the Jewish reaction? I would guess all the organizations that we would expect, the major ones certainly across the board, from the most unaffiliated in terms of religious affiliation to the most, all reacted like you'd expect. Anything, anything you would have changed about Jewish uh, communal reaction to this entire episode and its, uh, and its aftermath? No, there, I mean, there's a legitimate discussion about whether how Jews should make this event and, and the reaction. Obviously, Jews were targeted because Nazis marching, you know, the Jews will not replace us, and swastikas, and et cetera, and the threat against the synagogue, as we, we learned. Um, I think that, you know, the mobilization was fast in terms of our internal operations through SCAN, through the, the Secure Community Network operation, and others who were there on the site quickly, and... Uh, working with the community, but also alerting uh, the communities across the country to be aware and to, because you always have copycatting, you have other things. In fact, it was more limited, I think, than some people feared uh, so far, but it, it, it's not going away. And you see that they are announcing demonstrations in other places. Uh, so I think the community's response was, was appropriate. And, uh, you know, we I got a letter from President Rivlin, and I got letters from the leaders of the Jewish community in France and other countries, which was interesting because it's usually we who write them expressing <laughs> support for what they face and to get the letters, which I thought was a really wonderful gesture, very meaningful and appreciated. Um, that, but, but it teaches all of us that it's a universal problem today, and it's not isolated to one geographic area. And the dynamics of hate, the sources of the hate, whether it's Islamists, whether it's uh, extremist groups, whether uh, others, that, and, and the role of governments in dealing with it, these are, are now today messages and, and challenges that cross all borders and boundaries. Yeah, no question about that. Um, I, I would assume, and I'm not saying this tongue-in-cheek, I'm, I'm somewhat serious, that the Israeli leaders did not utilize this opportunity to remind people about the future of the Jewish people being in the state of Israel. They, they, they wouldn't have included that in this in these letters of solidarity? Well, they didn't say that, but the, it's interesting that the chief rabbi of Barcelona, after the attack, did say it. Right. And, uh, and other people obviously have, have alluded to it to remind people that uh, you know, no matter where you are and how secure you think you are, there are always going to be these challenges. Obviously, there are challenges in Israel as well, but uh, you know, it is the Jewish state, and it's the place where hopefully Jews are protected, and in, um, from some of the forces around us, although you see today in Israel the uh, Islamist movement, uh, they've imprisoned uh, Salah, the leader, that you have uh, uh, these, the, some of the same challenges that we face abroad. Uh, and one last thing on this, if we always, and I think it goes without saying, frankly, but I'm going to say it because I think it's important to say it in this forum. Um, if we do go out of our way, to cite when Rogers, Roger Waters and others, you know, um, say what they say, and that we need to to react um, with anger um, uh, to, to their point of view when it comes to Israel. Um, then we have to acknowledge the acts of solidarity that some uh, performers and you know high-profile people have undertaken. 
uh, with the Jewish world in the aftermath of all this. I think it's important for people to remember that and, and react appropriately. Absolutely, and those who had the courage to stand up to waters and Pink Floyd and people should be boycotting or expressing their whatever views they have about not participating, not supporting someone like that who has expressed such abhorrent views, um, and to, to thank those who continued to go to Israel. Uh, I don't remember all the Radiohead, which was very important because it came at a critical time, and right. other groups whose names I, I don't even remember. And um, but. You're absolutely right. We have to thank those who, who stood up and those who spoke out this time and those who, who acted against the, um, in their own communities against those forces, which in those who are closer to the front line than perhaps we are, and, and stand up. It takes a lot more courage and, uh, uh, to do so. <clears throat> but uh, it's one of the reasons why we organized to send these high-profile people, whether it's sports stars, uh, entertainment stars, religious leaders, others to Israel, uh, because when they go and they speak about what they saw, just as the critics can impact others, they, they come back and say, apartheid state, this is the first thing you've ever seen from an apartheid state. They talk about it in honest and open terms, and um, and and I think it's, uh, it's um, one of the antidotes, because our strongest weapon is the truth. There is a question whether you take on every charge. You have to evaluate it. You have to make a decision. Do you make every issue a Jewish issue and make it up front, or do we look for others to to take a lead and to shift the uh, and to sh- the sense of responsibility shouldn't just fall on us? And the the that is always a legitimate debate that takes place, and people can come to different conclusions even on it. Uh, no question about that. I want to ask you about the current. Um uh, peace talks. We know that uh, Jared Kushner and company have been sent by the White House to, I guess we'd call it, take a tour of the Middle East and to bring things to a certain point in terms of negotiations. Now, it, it's possible that this always happens in every administration, meaning that there's a that there's always a revolving door of officials heading to the Middle East and doing all of this. You certainly would know better than me. Um, maybe just in this case, because of the uh, connection to our community, or because we're expecting, or I'm expecting something from the the Trump administration different than than other administrations. That I just noticed this more. Is, is this typical that Jared Kushner and you know those who hold positions like his envoys to the Middle East, etc., are in fact shuttling back and forth constantly during the administration? Well, I think, I, I don't know, I think this is his third trip uh, to the Middle East. Uh, of course, he went with the president when he went to visit. Um, every administration comes in believing that they can make peace in the Middle East if they have some new approach. And the bottom line is that there are very limited approaches because you're dealing with a party that doesn't want to negotiate. That bottom line, the PA, the Palestinian Authority, won't even acknowledge the objections of the administration, Congress, others, um, Europeans, about the, the funding of the terrorists and, and allocating $350 million out of their budget and willing to take out those cuts in the budget just to continue this abhorrent uh, practice. So how can he be ready to, to make kind of a piece? He also said that uh, he was going to give him an ultimatum of 45 days. He also said... Uh, and many other things in advance, saying that you know he was tired of it, and these guys are all pro-Israel, and they bring him Netanyahu's talking points, and um, uh, he, he uh, said he's going to cut off security cooperation, and did cut off security cooperation, and then he blames Israel for not having the security co- cooperation, 
And the United States is saying, look, we're not going to impose a solution. I think this statement yesterday by the uh, State Department caught people off guard, where she wouldn't even say that they uh, support a two-state solution, saying we, we, we believe it's up to the parties. We're not going to impose anything that restricts uh, the parties themselves. Yeah, I was going to ask you if I should be shocked by that, especially in light of remember the last time we spoke, you, you had told us about the State Department's evaluation of the Israeli PA situation. You were not happy with it. Uh, very unhappy with it. And uh, so I don't know whether this was a deliberate policy decision. Was it um, just a, you know an off-the-cuff response? Um, but uh, I think that the, the um, uh, you know, the, the problem is not the negotiators. The problem is you have a boss. You have statements by the Arab foreign ministers and others supporting the initiative. Uh, they seem to have been welcomed in the other Arab countries. Uh, that they visited before coming to Israel, and the prime minister said he had a good meeting with them. The, um, so it doesn't appear that they're trying to impose a solution. They're trying to facilitate and to, to advance some progress of some kind. I believe that it will ultimately come back to the incremental steps of trying to do economic development, do things that change life on the ground, show people that there's value in, in that, and to counter the, the appeal of the terrorists and the extremists. Uh, you also have tremendous problems within the PA. You know, the, his political standing is, is very weak. You have competing uh, parties. And certainly in Israel, you have political pressures that come to bear on a prime minister, especially one that they feel is maybe wounded or under pressure right now. So this effort, uh, it's often an outside party that can help do what the parties themselves can't. But ultimately, the deal, as the delegation said, has to come from the parties themselves. It has to be something they agree on and they live with, because frankly, if it's not, it won't work. I hope I'm not reading, well, maybe I should hope that I am reading too much into this, but it sounds like from what you just said a minute ago that maybe there was more of an influence of the White House on the State Department in terms of its attitude or reaction to what's happening in the Middle East than, has been, than we have been used to in the past. Is it possible that this administration is, is, is influencing or strong-arming State Department officials a little bit more than past ones are when it comes to the Middle East? So it's speculation, but the, the uh, first of all, I, I don't know that how, how the State Department operates today. They still have vast number of positions open, and Secretary Tillerson operates at one level. I'm not sure what the level of coordination with the White House is, but I think essentially they they gave up the Middle East portfolio to, to this delegation to the White House. Um, so... I don't know if you can interpret too much into the State Department's statements and and positions. Essentially, they said this is, uh, and and Mr. Friedman, the ambassador to Israel, you know, reports, is close to the president, reports with them, uh, to them. uh, I've met many ambassadors who tell me that they don't report to the State Department now because there's nobody to report to all the assistant secretaries, everything. I mean, there's nobody essentially between them and Secretary Tillerson. So the State Department's role today and its function, uh, I think, is uh, a subject for another discussion, and a lot of analytics uh, will, and an analyst will, will take a look at it and maybe in, in hindsight and discuss what the changing role. They have talked about cutting it by a third. There are a lot of key positions open. Uh, so I, I think the question of the State Department's role is, is a separate one. And by the way, all those changes could last a while into other administrations. When you think about it, if you know, it, well, yeah. yes, because you can't just reverse as the right. president 
did 100 executive orders. We don't know still yet what all the impact will be. Right. But to implement, and especially because they are lagging behind, I think, other administrations in terms of filling a lot of these positions, if they, int- if they in fact, intend to fill them at all. Um, so I think that the uh, statement by the State Department, it's hard to know whether that's a deliberate policy statement or simply saying, look, we're not getting involved in the details of this. It's America's, I'm sorry, it's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listener-sponsored digital radio around the world on the web at NachumSiegel.com, on the NachumSiegel Network, and of course on the beloved NSN app. Malcolm Holmline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Chance to catch up on the weekly update. Um, Isn't it interesting how Korea and the U.S.-Korean situation, which many people were predicting was becoming very volatile, and they were concerned, many were concerned that, you know, look who's in the White House dealing with this. Is he doing a good job reacting to the whole thing? It's essentially out of the headlines at this point. Well, it it may not be the uh, lead headlines, but the developments continue. We see that they're moving ahead all the time on their various, uh, both the missile development. They issued statements about their nuclear capacity, weapons capacity, uh, the linkages to to Iran, the, uh, the fact that uh, North Korea is involved outside of the region and uh, increasingly playing a role, whether we know that they were in Syria because they built together with with Iran that the, the nuclear reactor that Israel took out, thank God. And um, so the fact that it's not the preeminent story all the time, the problem is that people tend to acclimate to it. Then you, you start accepting things at higher levels. So we, could, we, we would have said it's impossible for us to allow North Korea to pose a threat to its neighbors, to our allies, to the United States. We will never let them develop ballistic missiles. Then we go and say we're not going to allow them ballistic missiles that can reach us. Now they say they can reach Chicago and even New York. Then you say you're not going to let them have any mis- uh, uh, nuclear capacity. Then it, it keeps the bar keeps raising. And People tend then to accommodate to it, and only a new story when you escalate it beyond that, not recognizing that we're already in an extreme danger zone. And I think that still remains the case when you talk about North Korea and, you know, the question of what and how you react to it. The um, One of the stories, I don't know if you had posted this in the Daily Alert or not, but uh, there was a Bloomberg story that was, the headline was, Israel wants a seat at the table as powers seek an end to the Syrian war. When one, as Prime Minister of Israel, has a direct face-to-face entree <laughs> to the President of Russia, uh, who, who likely, I would guess, with the President of the United States, are the two most influential figures in this entire process, can, can one then claim that they don't have a real opinion or input as to what's happening in Syria vis-a-vis Iran? There's a difference between having uh, access and uh, ha- having a role in the actual discussion and the impact on the outcome. For Israel, the stakes are very high. The the encroachment of Iran and its allies, Hezbollah, Hamas, etc., uh, the in, in, and growing role in uh, in the Syrian conflict, the uh, acceptance of of that, the uh, fact that they are moving closer and closer to the to the Golan area. We know that they, or at least 
believe that they have built an infrastructure for monitoring developments in the Golan, meaning intelligence gathering, et cetera, and are looking to have a physical presence, that the void being created by the defeat of ISIS is being filled by Iran, and Israel is pressing that others have to fill it, the United States particularly, they're not so thrilled that Russia does it, um, and the uh, the ultimate outcome of the conflict, which leaves Assad in power, controlling what 40, 45 percent of the country, but with very limited uh, real say. But you have Iran with large swaths building another base, perhaps even a, an advanced missile production facility. You have Turkey with a base and and carving out its areas there, uh, and and many others, and the influx of Shiite militias and Shiite populations as part of an, a population exchange, and then seeing it in the larger context of what's happening in Iraq and Iran's role there, and the which many Iraqis, by the way, reject, even Shiites who, who do not want to live under under Iranian Shiite dom, domination. So the uh, for Israel, the, the, this is a, a third front where Iran would then have a front from Lebanon, from Syria, from uh, Gaza, and of course, wants to infiltrate and threatens the stability of of Jordan. They they thrive on the instability of countries, and um, uh, and Iran keeps getting away with uh, uh, more and more. Not only this these reports of the of the long range uh, factory in Syria, but uh, they bought a big swaths of land where we know that they are building uh, uh, bases and. And they and they keep threatening that that they can break out in five days. Well, then the, then the deal was a failure. If they can in fact get to twenty percent enriched uranium in five days after a break in accord, and they of course threaten it if the United States imposes the sanctions again and does other actions, that they will consider that a breach. Uh, well, if they can do that in five days, then this deal did not produce what it was supposed to to do. And five twenty percent enrichment is enough to build uh, a, a weapon. So Iran um, is is uh, expanding its influence directly and directly. They're they're advancing their role in Iraq despite some opposition, but clearly they're they are a dominant force there, and and the uh, Shiite government is is beholden to them. If only there would be the kind of uh, resistance, and we see the the uh, adventurism. The foreign minister, you know, at, of Iran, Zarif, attacking the Saudis, saying uh, that uh, their mudslinging is a lack of confidence, and uh, that Iran's policy is uh, what do you say, integrity and coordination. I mean, the the, the least integrous country in the world. And and they 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 go on the offense against uh, Saudi Arabia and and trying to raise the stakes there. But the the, the support for Hezbollah is is increasing. Hezbollah captured that ISIS enclave on the Syrian border uh, yesterday, and they're trying to create as many facts on the ground that if there is ever a ceasefire, that they will be in a dominant decision making. Uh, position and and the Golan and access to the Golan access to Israel's border is a primary objective for Iran as we've discussed for years. On yeah, I can imagine. So two things. First of all, the I mean, again with expectations that some of us had with the new administration in Washington, um, we had an expectation that the that this type of monitoring that you just described or lack thereof would be improved or at least encouraged or at least you know the U.S. would use its leverage to make sure the U.N. and others. 
you know, would utilize uh, whatever was necessary to monitor Iran. So, uh, number one, either I would assume based on what you're saying, either the U.S. does not have that influence that I think they might have, or that it just, you know, the the uh, the um, the horse is out of the barn, so to speak, and there's no uh, there's no turning back at this point. And, and no matter what the monitoring system would be, Iran can operate so quickly; it's almost irrelevant. I think there are elements of both. I don't think the United States is not monitoring them, and I think they are concerned about Iran's role and what it will mean. It's, I mean, it's a threat to the, all of our allies, right. and the United States is still considering Lebanon, considers it Lebanon an ally, and we're providing you know military equipment to them, et cetera. And they have say that the, you know that that sustaining that military, the national military, even though there's tremendous integration with Hezbollah, or Hezbollah's role is integral. Um, that 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 is an important stabilizing force in the future and could be whatever, but all of these are threatened by by Iran, and the the uh, at sometimes we, we seem to be backing off and leaving it to others to make determinations about the future course. We have a very limited involvement, in fact, in Syria. Uh, the Russians, with with a minimum investment, people would be shocked to know that they only have a couple dozen planes, that, that the amount that they invested. In the meantime, they're picking up the naval base and air force base. They they have expanded their influence. They're the ones who backed uh, uh, Assad, saying that, you see, we are, we are the loyal uh, people to our friends. And uh, leaving a situation which could be even more destabilizing and more dangerous than it was under Assad. Yeah. Well, with all that in mind, just back to the original question then for a second, Prime Minister Netanyahu walks into these meetings with President Putin. Is he taken seriously or not? Does he have any diplomatic influence or not? Is it a formality as far as Russia is concerned just to keep Israel placated or not? Well, it certainly underscores the relevance of Russia as a key player there. And there was a specific agenda. They went there with information, as they did with the delegation that came to Washington the week before, uh, led by the Mossad head and others, giving detailed information on the expansion of the Iranian foothold in a military foothold in uh, Syria, expansion of their activities, and the increasing danger that it, it represents. So the, the, that, that was the agenda to go there and to try to get assurances that the, they, these guys will stand up. It does not appear that they got all that they wanted, and we'll, we'll have to see with time what the, the result will be. Putin, of course, says he's a great friend of Israel, and he's got a million Russian Jews there, and feels an identity with it. Um, and Netanyahu has said that he has a very good uh, working relationship. They meet quite frequently. But the bottom line is, what kind of actions will they take? What will, what will be that when it comes to the test of Iran's role, Iran's ability to dominate? The United States certainly doesn't want it, and doesn't want it to happen, and will do what it can, I think, to within the limited confines that we are currently operating on. Uh, you know, that if, if the North Korea could send two shipments of chemical weapons, as reported to Syria, perhaps financed by Iran, and this, after all the assurances, you know, the chemical weapons is over, there, there are reports that there have been at least 200 attacks with chemical weapons over recent years by Syria against its own population. I mean, what this was of the violation of violations. It was supposed to be the critical issue. Uh, you know, so if none of these red lines hold, then 
nothing then the the bad guys interpret this as the weakness of the west the weakness of, of opposition to them and will just be more bold in in their actions you think uh, Bibi's going to survive when it comes to uh, the Israeli political scene? We had Yaakov Katz on last week. He gave us his perspective in terms of the whole issue on the three uh, scandals, quote-unquote, that he and his wife are involved in, meaning Bibi and his wife. Uh, anything different from your perspective over the last couple of weeks? No, it's been quiet the last uh, days, um, part, I guess, because it's August and a lot of people are away. Mm, but the uh, the cases continue to be developed. I know people have been called and interviewed. I have not seen yet any specific charge. There is nothing leveled against the prime minister, so people shouldn't jump to conclusions, wait and see. We know that often the police will make charges and then say that, well, they didn't have enough evidence and they didn't convict. Um, So right now, I think Netanyahu will stay in office. Uh, He has said that even if he's indicted, he will stay. Others have said he would have to leave. Obviously, he's wounded, and this is a distraction when you have these critical issues. But by his trips and other things, it shows that he's still working and address, trying to address those issues. Yeah. Uh, Malcolm, the, it's now po- uh, post-Rosh Chodesh Elul, and it's this time of year when we begin to remind people about uh, the large gatherings that we're going to have in synagogues and Jewish institutions around the country. Is there any specific um, uh, address, phone number, uh, web address, anything you want to give out? Uh, for people concerned about security and those who are looking for the advice that you always uh, you know, speak about on the air in terms of setting up their own institution uh, securely for the high holidays? Anything they should know about at this point? Both because of the high holidays and because schools are opening, and we must pay more attention to the security issues, and they should go to SCNUS, that's SCAN, Secure Community Network US, but the, the web address is scnus.org. They can get a lot of information. They can be in touch with SCAN for advice if they have particular circumstances, um, how you train people for lone shooter events, for all sorts of things that an ounce of prevention can save a lot of lives in a moment of, of uh, terror. And you don't have time then to start thinking and to, to develop a plan. You have to do it in advance, and kids should be trained what to do. And you remember in Connecticut how many lives were saved because the teachers were trained to put the kids in closets to get them under desk, whatever, uh, in, in, God forbid, a bad situation. And as unlikely as it is, it is not impossible. And the cameras at institutions, all sorts of things that can be done at relatively small cost is, um, is very important. And by the way, I wanted to point out one other thing about you saw when we were talking about Iran, to remind people about Iran's role in the attacks in Argentina. And you remember the the murder of Nisman, which we discussed many times, and they sure. said it was a suicide, etc. Well, the new prosecutor who replaced Mr. Nisman, uh, who was Jewish and who, was, uh, who brought indictments against seven Iranians and one Lebanese, they now um, tested the body for, for, or they did toxicology tests, and they found uh, a chemical... Ketamine, which they said could not have been self-administered. It's not something he would have taken because they said that he committed suicide. This is pretty much proof now that it wasn't, and the fingers all point to Iran. And, you know, you see that the extensive nature of the um, of that and, and that Iran, you know, has put off any action. They have not responded to the appeals for extradition of those who have been who've been named, the seven who were named. 
meantime, Israel is sending six tons of food and stuff to South Sudan and to, to villages there and to, to save lives, in addition to the many other things they do every day to save lives. Including this, the, the effort up north for those who are injured in Syria. More than 3,000 Syrians treated in Israeli hospitals at no cost and often at great expense requiring prosthetic devices, children, hundreds of children who've been treated, and young Israelis every day risking their lives to go across the border. You never see credit, a word of credit, acknowledgement, anything about um, uh, what they have done. And I think that the, the, um, you know, the, this disparity and the fact that Israel constantly comes under the, the attack and the scrutiny and the, the uh, horrific uh, allegations, which are baseless and, and condemnatory of, of Israel, when in fact it is every day demonstrating the, its humanitarian commitments and, and all of those who criticize it have none. It is remarkable, isn't it? Uh, by the way, as you know, I uh, had the privilege of uh, of being on another Aliyah flight, not permanently again, but uh, with Nefesh Benefesh, and did the show uh, from the from the plane, which was amazing in and of itself. But I, you know, e- each flight has its own personality. In this case, uh, I was hit emotionally by the fact that the that a, a a large number of my own children's colleagues and classmates were making Aliyah on their own. And I was wondering if, if you go through the same thing when you see your own children and grandchildren's colleagues and classmates making Aliyah, uh, it, it sometimes gives it a, an extra emotional feeling. Of course. And, and when you see that, I think there were 85 Chayelim uh, Bodidim, lone soldiers that went to Israel, and American kids who are going to serve in the IDF, I mean, it is the ultimate expression of commitment and uh, I think it's it's uh, really amazing, and we should salute these kids and and show what real values are, what real commitment is, and the um, you know the trips. You know, by the way, on your third trip, you have to stay. You can't come back. <laughs> they won't let you back again. Uh, well, I'm really in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> no, I meant the third Nefesh Benefesh trip. I know. I'd say I'm really in trouble. This was our sixth. <laughs> uh, sixth. Yeah. So you owe them three, and uh, <laughs> and um, and we look at what happened here, and the people say, "Oh, Israel's not safe. Israel's not secure." Maybe it's a wake-up call. It certainly is. Thank you so much. We'll uh, have a wonderful Shabbos, and we'll speak again next week. Yes, I should be welcome. Malcolm Holmline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Joins us Friday, seven forty Eastern Time, for the weekly update here at JMAM.